This is What Comes Next, a show about the technologies that will shape your future. I'm Amy Dickens. I'm Rob Kellner. And I'm Kwaku Akomensa. Hello, Rob. Hello, Kwaku. How are you guys doing? Yeah, doing all right. Thanks. Doing all right. I feel like this, uh, like probably everyone else uh, on the planet, I have suffered from like the res- one of the many resurgent strains of cold and or flu. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like a virus party in the UK at the moment. Just like everything's going around. We've had norovirus. We've had, I think it's called the super cold. Oh, gosh. You hear about this, which is like, it's a, it's, always, it's a, a fairly, you know, quote unquote regular form of cold because our immune systems aren't used to it. We, have, we didn't have like last year's cold. Uh, oh, our, yeah, we, our immune system is just less, is less prepared, so it's going to hit us worse. Yeah. Um, which is which is like good and bad, right? On the one hand, it's like okay, we'll feel much worse. And I definitely had this a couple of weeks ago. I was so achy and tired. On the other hand, I get accused of having like quote unquote man flu all the time. Like I'm just making too big a deal of it. So this is nice that there's like a better name for it: the super the super cold. It sounds kind of you know vaguely heroic. I battled the super cold, <laughs> you know. So that's a good, you know. So silver lining is like I feel, I, I feel immortal now. I had the complete opposite visual of like a bunch of paper dolls just getting blown over by this tiny gust of wind because we've <laughs> because we've all spent so much time indoors over the past year that like the slightest virus is going to knock us over. But yeah, let's let's pretend the super cold is very uh, heroic. I think that's a, I think that's more apt uh, a metaphor for sure, Amy. Um, it just makes me feel, you know, a little less powerful. <laughs> so I'll go with my sort of deluded vision, if that's okay. Quakes, have you fallen victim to the super flu yet? Or super yeah, cold? I've had an absolute nightmare with it, mate. It's been <laughs> awful. Oh, no. <laughs> I've forgotten. You know, like when you forget what it's like to have a full-on cold that just like knocks you for six. Yeah, I had that like last week. Um, so, yeah. And then me and my partner and my daughter all had it. So, like, got oh, all man. sort of like, like streaming noses crawling about the house <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit a little bit crazy but um but yeah hopefully fingers crossed um i think we've probably seen the worst of it so yeah. i'm hoping we're kind of coming out the other side now yeah and then i don't know just like yeah trying to kind of shift gears into sort of autumn mode like summer is definitely done that that pelting of like yeah fat uh september rain kind of like yeah just punctuated the end of summer there (laughs) yeah kind of switching gears a bit i always know when the season changed this is a ridiculous thing to say but i always know when the season changes because my foot starts to hurt because i had (laughs) (laughs) like an old fisherman (laughs) yeah i i I had a i had a stress fracture in my foot many many years ago from ballet and I don't I don't know what it is. I don't know if it never healed properly or I don't know what. But every time the sort of like the season definitively changes, my foot starts to hurt and it starts to feel like throbby and sore. And it was like that this morning when I put my shoes on. So I was like, yep, we're done. Summer's done. We're done. Wow. <laughs> I've never understood how that works, right? Because like your bone is in the middle of your leg. So how is it getting affected by the damp? <laughs> so many layers of protection yeah, really, well really... they say they say it's in the bones right yeah. so the bone chilled down to the bones yeah yeah speaking of what lies within we we had the great pleasure of speaking with dave hughes on this episode the founder and ceo of nova sound Dave started out as an academic in the field of biomedical engineering, but spotted an opportunity for ultrasound to be vastly improved in the areas of industry, aviation, and medicine. And so, NovaSound was born. NovaSound have developed a material that has made industrial ultrasound more flexible, accurate, and easy to manufacture. 
Through storing data from their sensors in the cloud, factories and plants can be monitored constantly and remotely so that issues can be spotted in advance and targeted for repair, saving plant operators large amounts of time and also money. So let's jump right in. Hello, Dave. Thank you so much for coming on What Comes Next. Thanks very much for inviting me on. How are things up in Scotland? Things are good. We're having quite a cold day for the first time. We've had six months of brilliant weather and now it's dropped below 10 <laughs> degrees and it's, it's, it's getting chilly. Yeah, I think I, I think we're facing a little bit of the same down here. It was like 22 degrees earlier this week and today I had to get my jacket, so kind of brutal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah winter is coming. Winter is definitely winter coming. Winter is definitely yes. coming. Um, so you're here to speak to us about Nova Sound. Um, so can you just start maybe telling us a little bit about who you guys are, what it is that you do. Okay, so Nova Sound is a company that I founded back in April 2018 as a spin-out from the University of the West of Scotland. We sell advanced ultrasound sensors for the non-destructive testing and monitoring of uh, structures in aviation, energy, power generation, and we also do a wee bit of uh, medical ultrasound as well. I mean, my my sort of first thought is whenever I hear the words ultrasound is always about medicine. And I know you have a background in um, biomedical engineering. So can you maybe explain um, for the audience a little bit about the importance of ultrasound in engineering specifically? So my background is very much biomedical ultrasound. And I was a senior research fellow for many years in medical ultrasound. And we created a way of making ultrasound sensors. It was very uh, well, we print them instead of machining them, which has a number of commercial benefits. So that's what gave uh, rise to the commercial viability of the process to create the business. However, if anybody who's started up a medical device company knows, it's very, very difficult and expensive to generate the amount of capital you need to create a medical device startup. Yeah. But what we also knew is that medical ultrasound came back in 1954 from the industrial sector where they use a uh, higher frequency sound waves than you'd get sonar which is an industrial ultrasound technique but they use that for testing metal structures and that happened back in just as glasgow in a town called renfrew where i actually live the first medical diagnostic ultrasound took place where they took industrial equipment that did in uh, industrial ultrasound inspection equipment tested on a bag of meat and that became medical ultrasound so when we were looking to create a medical devices company, we thought, well, if the ultrasound is still getting used in the industrial sector, that's probably maybe got a lower barrier to entry. Generally, mm. well, revenues create the company and then move into medical devices as we go. We've always had some R&D contracts in the medical space, but probably 80% of what we do is in the industrial sector. This keeps uh, pipelines uh, from leaking into the environment. One of the biggest sources of pollution is corrosion, where uh, the what's meant to be kept inside the pipes leaks out due to corrosion and keeps aircraft in the sky because pass passenger safety relies on aircraft taking off and landing in one piece. And when they land, you need to make you need to inspect them, make sure there's no cracks or defects appearing in the composite structures. So ultrasound is perhaps it's not the most sexy or glamorous medical devices imaging technique when you compare it to the MRI, PET, CAT scans, but it's used much more widespread than any of those across the industrial sectors, keeping you know the energy flowing in the aircraft in the sky. So it's, it's a very, very important technique in, in, in the industry. I love how you mentioned the birth of ultrasound being in, in Glasgow, because I was, I was actually going to say it's quite a uh... 
it's quite interesting that you guys are sort of founded up in in the Renfrew area or in, in the Glasgow area. And no, absolutely. You know, you're carrying on that great tradition, so that must be quite exciting. There's one that people perhaps don't know. If you think of Scottish inventions, they always go to the telephone or TV or MRI. Ultrasound's kind of that under-the-radar uh, method, but uh, perhaps... <laughs> carrying on the grand tradition. Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, you, you spoke about uh, the ability to print um, your materials. And so if you could maybe talk a little bit about some of the limitations in the equipment currently and how your uh, your specific products are overcoming these. Sure. So traditional ultrasound sensors tend to be made out of a ceramic material. Ceramics are known for just being very hard. If you have some ceramic pots, you know, they're very hard. And uh, if you drop them, they smash because they're brittle. And that is just how it's been for 40 years. It's a, a lead-based ceramic known as PZT that has the piezoelectric effect. You put electricity into it, it changes shape so you can create a sound wave and vice versa. The sound wave can create an electric current. And that's used in the medical systems, industrial systems. That That's just the, the, the status quo. However, there's a number of limitations. In, in particular in aviation or aerospace, all these fantastic new aircraft that are getting designed on computer are all designed for aeronautical efficiency. Nothing's flat on an aircraft anymore, but they're not designed for uh, for inspection. The ceramics don't bend around these complex shapes, so you get poor signal conduction. In the oil and gas industry or the energy industry, you're transporting hot gases or hot uh, liquids through you know the processing plants. And if you want to inspect them, you have to shut down the plant so it cools down before you put an ultrasound transducer on the pipe. And that comes from the piezoelectric effect in ceramics breaks down at high temperature. So you've got a limitation there of about 100 degrees or so. And shutting down a plant means not generating any money. And then uh, the third limitation as we see it, which is perhaps more in the medical uh, market that you'll have seen, ultrasound images are typically low quality. You'll see the standard trope in TV shows where somebody has their ultrasound scan and then it's the joke about, well, I can't actually see the baby in it. They turn it around, you know, poor quality ultrasound comes from the low resolution nature of traditional probes. You can get high resolution probes, but they are expensive because you have to machine them in a complex way. So our printed method isn't based on ceramic. So right away you get rid of that temperature limitation. We can operate our probes right up to 400 degrees C. So there's no shutdown of the plant. You can do your inspection monitoring while the money's flowing, let's say. It's completely flexible because it's printed uh, and it's very thin so it can bend. You've not got video on the podcast, obviously, but that's a probe that can bend and twist. I'm just kind of showing. the. And so if you're inspecting complex geometries or the curves on modern aircraft, you can do that with a single probe. And then finally, because it's a printed ultrasound sensor that operates at higher resolution, the image quality is improved. So by replacing incumbent technology of ceramic with the printed ultrasound sensor, you get flexibility, high resolution, and then also the ability to operate while the plant or the aircraft or the the hot thing is, is still in operation, saving money. Could you give us a sense of um, the kind of sort of breakthroughs you had to achieve to kind of get to that point? I mean, you're talking about you know such a step change in what an ultrasound sensor is, is capable of doing. So most of the core research was done at the University of the West of Scotland in an academic environment. So it was lots of grant funding over probably a period of 10, 15 years or so. And 
I came at it from my a lot of my initial research in ultrasound was still using the ceramic materials to machine and make ultrasound probes for research purposes. And it would maybe take two two weeks to four weeks to make a single ultrasound probe that had the high resolution capabilities I needed. And it was delicate, so you know, it was under armed guard really, so nobody else was allowed to use it. It was a very kind of prized possession when it worked. You may get four month four weeks into the process and not end up with a probe because it's just difficult to manufacture. By moving over to the printed technique that was starting to mature, all of a sudden after a day or two days I had about ten probes. So it, it completely kind of a step change in the manufacturing tech. And at the end of the day, Novacent's a manufacturing business. Most of our uh, IPs and the actual making of things. So the step change really came from the fact of now I've got more probes and I know what to do with, and they all operate the same, and that makes it commercially viable because you've scaled the process. So the university got excited about this. We applied to Scottish Enterprise to commercialise the uh, the research. And we were awarded a half a million pound grant to do proof of technology, which was the actual showing that this works and is useful, and then proof of business. So we then started writing business plans with a view to raise private equity to basically buy out my research group from the university and the IP and set up our own manufacturing plant. In April 18, that all happened. We were meant to spin out from the university in July 18, but it was like we gave a pitch to an investor on a Wednesday, we had a term sheet on a Friday, we closed the deal in six weeks time at double the amount, so we were very oversubscribed round, and that was kind of, April 18 was the date, 6th of April 2018 was when basically my life changed and Novacent kind of got off the, off the blocks running, and since then we've grown our team from six up to 30, we've built a full manufacturing plant outside of Glasgow, and we've started selling the probes to some of the biggest customers in the world, so it's a... Uh, it's been quite a ride since then. I mean, that that sounds absolutely incredible. Um, the the process of bringing that uh, that investor on board must have been like, well, that's that's moving at light speed in uh, in investment terms. What was, like, can you tell me a little bit about you know what was the kind of clinching moment? You see the light bulb go off in somebody's uh, in somebody's head who was in that room. So one of the things that I always did, and it kind of goes back to what Amy kind of said a while ago about how everybody thinks of ultrasound and then all of a sudden they get drawn to the hospital as the environment. Our pitch was purely industrial and I never mentioned hospital, never mentioned medical ultrasound. So that when the pitch was finished and it went to the round the table, because these aren't like Dragon's Den's pitch where it's just a panel, this is always a discussion. But you do your 10 minute presentation, don't mention medical ultrasound. It's a bit like doing a interview with Neil Armstrong and not mentioning the moon, that kind of thing. So then when it goes to Q&A, the first question, the investor will raise their hand and say, could this work in the hospital? Has this got medical applications? And you go, actually, that's a really good question. And uh, <laughs> you know, the investor on the side of the table understands it or believes that they, they've caught something new in this. So then they all say, oh, this could be used medical. And they buy in more to it. In the investor ecosystem in Scotland, because obviously Aberdeen's a huge oil and gas city and there's a lot of money that's came in and gone out and came in and lots of wealthy individuals up in the oil and gas market, energy markets in Scotland. But a lot of the projects that come out of universities tend to be bio and medical. We had a sweet spot in that we could target the medical investors, you know, the, the ones who had life sciences or bio and medical interests, but we were also in industrial oil and gas energy 
a project. So those who had their money made from the energy markets or the oil and gas markets were automatically interested because finally there's something they, they can they be what's known as smart money against. You know, not just giving us a check, but actually saying, here's a check and here's our expertise, here's our network, so let's build something yeah. special in Scotland. Opening we really had that guys. sweet spot there. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's fascinating. And I suppose that that probably, you know, a lot of, a lot of the time when um, a company gains an investment, the first thing that they do is scratch their head about exactly how they're going to spend it and mm -hmm. how they're going to enter the market. But presumably you guys have probably had quite a quick uptick in some interesting flagship um, clients, probably quite large ones as well, through the smart money that you brought on board. Was that the way it panned out? It was the way it was meant to pan out. So uh, when you do your pitch, and we had you know a year prior to launching the business plan, where we did a lot of customer engagement, got to speak to a lot and make sure that when we were going to create the company, we had some contracts lined up to basically get started with. And, you know, the commercial world is completely different to the, the academic world in that some things just don't happen, you know, or they happen very fast or they don't happen very slowly. So when we raised the money, we automatically, we raised the money off the back of some really good evaluations that we'd done with potential customers. And then when the company started, we just basically amplified the amount of customer engagement we were doing. And we actually ended up selling to new customers and none of the ones that we'd mentioned in the original pitch deck. They're still ongoing as partnerships, but not as customers. There's obviously a difference between collaborative. And really that, that sounds quite negative, but what it actually came out of was when we wrote our business plan with the existing customers that were written in it, it was very much in what's known as an OEM, original equipment manufacturer arrangement, where we would just be selling very small components at wholesale pricing. But because we raised twice the money in the equity, the investment round, <clears throat> the advice was that you had to go up the value chain. So rather than just selling little components into a bigger system, we are now selling the system, so our customer base changes. We go up, so the value goes up, the price goes up, and now we're competing with the people that we were originally going to be selling to, but we get much higher value sales out of it. So it's, it's all about you know, kind of how do you go up that value chain so that you sell things at a higher price, higher value, still you know, doing what you need, but makes ultimately more exciting because you've actually got tangible products rather than widgets to sell. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose even further up that value chain is a services business as well absolutely. at some point. Is that is that where you're at now at that kind of inflection point where you'll maybe take more investment and grow a team that's actually on the ground? How, yeah. How will that work? So it's all, the next phase of Novacent is all about digital services. So because we do remote monitoring, there's a data play and we're actually just have, uh, did an installation yesterday up in Aberdeen. So data is now flowing to our data, uh, data centers, monitoring corrosion on pipes. And uh, that, that's really what the next phase of Novison is going to be, is providing this without having to do the manned inspections or sending teams of uh, inspectors out there doing completely remote, harnessing that data to predict when corrosion is going to happen in the oil and gas markets or predict when faults are going to happen in the aerospace market and really, uh, yeah, turn the business from being a sensors company, which is what the first two investment rounds were all focused around, into being a digital uh, inspection company. I was gonna, I was gonna go there next, actually, because, um, yeah, with the, with, I hate to mention the dreaded P word, but with the pandemic, um, what you guys have been doing is kind of making it so people can monitor things remotely. Um, so yeah, if you if you could just kind of talk us through, I guess maybe maybe some of the individual products and how they actually monitor and how all that information is 
you know, the right people receive that information, that would be yeah. really useful. So our flagship monitoring product is known as the Bellinus, and this is named mm. after the god of fire because it operates at high temperature. And in Scotland, there's Beltane Festival where they swing fire around and dance around fires. So Very Bellinus, appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> all, our, all our products end up a Celtic uh, slant to them. The Bellinus product is a continuous corrosion monitor. It gets attached mm. to pipes and monitors the thickness of the wall of the pipe, and as it corrodes, that should get thinner. Or okay. You hope that it doesn't because it doesn't get thinner that's not corroding. And that gets connected to our Nebula platform, which is the cloud reporting. And basically what that allows you to do is send in your team of inspectors once to install the probes in very harsh environments, explosive environments, high temperature environments, and then sit back and just monitor remotely the state of the pipes. That has a number of benefits. You've got the safety, first and foremost, especially the, with the view of the pandemic. Some of these places that you need to inspect, you're sending in a team of five, ten individuals to work mm. in very close confines and very cramped spaces. Obviously, as we know, it's an air, air, airborne pathogen, that's perfect for it. So by removing that requirement, you're increasing the safety of the workforce to do the inspection. Because you can also install these sensors in places that you then get the guys out, turn it back on, so turn the boiler back on, turn the process plant back on. You've still got the continuous monitoring happening. So the data is still running, even though your plant is operating, so your efficiency has gone up, allowing you to plan better when you need to turn off to do maintenance. Mm. At the moment, a lot of the inspection and maintenance routines are intertwined with each other. You shut down the plant, shut down the boiler to do inspection and then very quickly maintenance. What we're enabling people to do is continually do your inspection. So then when you do have to shut down the boiler and basically you know, stop the money flowing, you, you know when you have to put, you know what maintenance you have to do and where. So you can be much more targeted, mm. get in, get out, turn the boiler back on. And that's really where the customer base that we've got in the power generation market see the benefits of those. Yeah, yeah, so you've got a much more proactive... Uh, approach to repairs and maintenance. That's... Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's all about targeted maintenance without the inspection and the same. Because a shutdown might be two weeks, and the first week's all your inspection, and you inspect the whole boiler and find one bit that needs to be fixed. Yeah, that's a lot boiler. of money. Exactly. Whereas if you continually monitor it, that two week becomes two weeks of maintenance that can get done right the first time. It's funny how the the overlaps between kind of industry and medicine are just kind of like running through this conversation, right? So on the one you've got the whole kind of like preventative medicine, preventative maintenance kind of aspects here, right? Yeah. You're continuously monitoring, you pick up a mistake when it's, oh, sorry, an issue when it's small, you repair it quickly, you repair it in a sort of targeted way, less damage, less kind of a, less invasive, I assume, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I guess you've also got the idea, just the general um, thing about, you know, external analysis of a problem is kind of always like looking through a scanner darkly, right? So you have symptoms of a patient versus these sorts of like fairly intransparent ways of sensing damage, like changes in pressure, changing in sound, um, both in the human body and the kind of industrial context you work in, you're looking at, you're visualizing a specific issue, which I imagine kind of yields so many benefits. And we've talked about kind of shutting down, that kind of thing, but so many kind of benefits in terms of kind of doing specific kind of engineering tasks as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we've got a, a large overlap with the wearables healthcare market. And we do have a number of projects running in the wearable space, uh, monitoring the lung, monitoring the bladder, a few other targets. 
and the way that I mean, it sounds very kind of uh, from an investor who was trying to invest in Novas and think, Jesus, this this is a very distracted business where they've got their inspection, they've got the monitoring, they've got wearables. What 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 is going on? But because we with our new sensor had to build a lot of the technology from the ground up, we could make it as versatile and generic as possible. So when we actually consider, and this is how I can put it in context, if you consider condition monitoring as just being wearables for pipes, you're putting an ultrasound sensor permanently installed on a pipe and blasting data up to the cloud and setting off an alarm when something goes wrong. Wearables, you basically attach the sensor permanently to a human either the wrist, their arm, their chest, blast data to a cloud and set off a warning if something goes wrong. Yeah. The ultrasound signal is the same. It's just what it's bouncing off inside is different. So that's allowed us to use the same platform that we apply to oil and gas, to the bladder, to the lungs. And you know, there, there's a large amount of activity in the wearables market going on in Scotland and, and around the place. What's the current health? One of the biggest companies coming out of Scotland at the moment. And back when I was an academic, one of the first commercial projects I did before I even thought about creating my own company was working with what Current Health was at the time, which was a company called Snap40. And we were looking at monitoring dehydration with ultrasound in a wearable platform. I really kind of just was enamoured by what I saw Chris, uh, Chris McCann, the founder, doing with Snap40. I thought I could, I could see myself doing that. And really it kind of got me thinking about how do I commercialise my research to you know, take it out of the university. But, you know, wearables has been running through the technology right from that start all the way through to, you know, where we are now. But uh, when you're a startup, one of the things you have to do is find your product market fit in a niche market that no one else is tapping into. And if we were to go into medical and try and overtake the GEs and Siemens of the medical imaging market, we wouldn't get anywhere because the barrier to entry is so high. The wearables ultrasound market is non-existent almost at the moment. Uh, there's, I, I don't, I don't believe at the moment there's a commercially successful wearable product on the market at the moment with the uses ultrasound. So, the proof of concepts we're doing to tout a business from the bigger players is all about capturing that market. You know, blue mm. ocean theory, while everybody's looking at one thing, you go off and get kind of, blue in that niche. You're stepping in the side door. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And our technology from being printed really brings the cost of the sensor down while maintaining the resolution, allowing you to look at things in the human body remotely that you couldn't do in the past. So it, it allows it to be a much more uh, a much more viable commercial product in the wearable space. And that's probably about two or three years in the future. But uh, you know, every week, every month or so, we get inquiries from you know publicly traded health companies, blue chips, etc., who are looking at ways of applying ultrasound in the human body. And some of them are really exciting and hopefully next time we speak in a few years we'll be able to show you how, how it's actually working but that was going to be um one of my next questions was you know like how long are you on this ride for do you keep growing this company and you know essentially licensing it out to different um different sectors because uh, it sounds like it's got so many different um parameters that it, it could fit uh, or is that quite an attractive um, exit strategy to have someone you know come with the right the right check and, and acquire you guys? Yeah, I mean, when you do private equity investment, we've done our Series A in December nineteen. Uh, an exit is always what your shareholders are looking for, and I think we always say we're like three years into the five year journey because you always tell your investors, yeah, it's going to be an exit in five years, three to five year exit strategy. That's what we're doing. 
and then every time you're doing another investment round, it's another three to five years till exit, etc. So you're on that kind of conveyor belt, and it is definitely something that we're always it's always fun to mind when you're building a company like this. And there, there's always a sweet spot to to do your exit, uh, trying to avoid the valley of death. We've done all your innovation, you're growing, you're getting lots of good results with the proof of concepts, feasibility studies, but you do not want to go into full scale manufacturing and actually try and get the product to market because then you get into the valley of death where you spend all this money, nobody's really buying it just yet because it's not t- really taken off. So you've got a lot of burns, so you start going down again, then all of a sudden you take off because you hit market and away you go. The sweet spot to, to exit is just before that value, valley of death where the blue chips or the big acquirers see that there's something there they watch you do all the hard part. They don't come and help you with that. But then as soon as you're about to get successful, they come and say, right, we'll take that. Thank you. And if you do it right, you avoid having to do the valley of death. But so we're kind of on the foothills of that initial curve. We have a number of discussions uh, with uh, exit strategies, let's say. But really, these exit discussions can take anywhere between the three to five years of the three to five year plan almost so uh, we structured the business in such a way that it'll be easy to do when it happens we will have an industrial sector a medical sector a wearable sector let's say and that that makes it attractive to uh, potential buyers because if you have somebody who really likes the medical side they might not have any interest in the industrial so why would they want to buy a, a pipe monitoring company in order to get to the medical so that when you're setting up your business you want to keep it as simple as possible but also as, as attractive as possible then there's various ways you can do that yeah absolutely yeah it's fascinating to hear you talk about that journey um uh you, I, I hope that you don't take this in any kind of offense at all but like you know we deal with a lot of academics um who have come up with incredible ip and are commercializing them but i don't think that i've heard an academic talk with that degree of like you know certainty about how they're expanding into so many different markets it's pretty like it's pretty crazy like i would have never said okay this guy is an academic at heart um who is who is spinning something out i would have said this person is someone who's exited a number of businesses you know kind of sounds that way no i would not do that as any criticism at all i'm a recovering academic I think uh, I was an academic for about 10 years, 15 years or so. Yeah. But this is definitely the best career move I've made because it's really shown me you know, how you actually get impact for your research as you get out and get into the real world and where, where you actually hit the sweet spot of getting impact. People get excited about it and all these conversations become real. The, the pace of life of, you know, of doing R&D in the real world rather than paper after paper after paper yeah. peer review. Uh, you know, you write a paper, it gets peer reviewed by the same people that you're citing in your, you know, in, in your reference list. It just kind of creates this kind of perpetual group or clique. If you're in the real world, customers are much more honest with you. <laughs> you know, sure. if something's not quite right, they tell you. But, you know, I've had a good selection of mentors around me of people who have done exits where, you know, Scotland's got a great ecosystem for entrepreneurs who are building companies and you know you just pick up the phone and you can speak to anyone who's you know the, the, those who have exited Skyscanner or those who are building Current Health or you know that there's just so many people around for advice that I, I, it does feel like when you're in this position of a of a startup as a founder as a CEO you're not you are doing it alone it's one of the most lonely jobs on the planet but there is such a support network around that gets you through it 
almost. Mm. Uh, you know, my co-founder, Richard, uh, he built a company for like 14 years and then exited it and then left the blue chip that bought his company to start the journey again because you do get a bit of a it's a bit like a drug <laughs> this kind of, bit of a buzz from it sounds. so he wanted to start the journey again and then he got introduced to me who was trying to commercialize my research so a lot of my learnings came from him but then as i've gone and brought on investors board members non-execs advisory boards you just get you embed yourself in it and you get to hear the stories about how it works and then i start telling my stories to other people but then you always have a caveat and say, well, that worked for me, but it probably did <laughs> yeah. your business because your business is not my business and every business is different and, you know, <laughs> good luck. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I, I'm curious, um, how, how much does it keep you up at night, somebody catching you guys up? Because obviously, like you said, right, this is all about the right timing, the right niche in the market. And it sounds like you guys have got all of that until the point that, you know, somebody else comes along with a, a similar um technology and you know an academic spin out in canada yeah. for example goes okay right here we go we're we're at, we're at your heels Can you talk yeah about no, that? absolutely i think you've always got one eye on the competitors and all, always one eye on the university research and the trade shows and the conferences you what's coming in the pipeline next you can get really bogged down in it but part of building a business is protecting your business and protecting your market offering and just making sure that if you've got two technologies, you know, that are very similar, there's a whole bunch of other differentiators that the customers care about. So one of the things that we have that gets our us customers is that we're easy to work with. So you might have a, a technology that's better than what we do, but you're really difficult to work with. That won't win you business. Right. So yeah. The protected market isn't just about having the best technology. Well, we all know about VHS and Betamax. And, you know, at the end of the day, which one worked out, which one took the market, but which was the superior technology. So that's not to say we don't have the superior technology. Our technology is brilliant, <laughs> as you said, but you always have to look at a business having you know, multiple facets to it. I always said that to create the business, you need tech, which we had. You need a team, myself, my co-founder, and then you had timing. So put those three together, and that's what's enabled us to do what we do now. We've been on a bit of a run in the show of, of sort of Scottish companies, Scottish innovations. Uh, so we've had HV Systems, which is Glasgow based. We had Gravitricity, which is Port Leith near Edinburgh. Uh, we actually talked about Current Health last episode, which I do, I'm a massive fan. I absolutely love what they're doing, kind of, kind of continuous monitoring wearable space. Uh, and now we have you guys. So, so how do you feel about kind of, you know, the sort of where the sort of Scottish startup ecosystem is at the moment. We've talked about the long history that Scotland's had of invention and innovation, but where do you think things are right now and you know how bright do you think the future is? I think we're definitely on the cusp of being a, a proper global player in startups and scale-ups. We've got a number of really good opportunities coming out, you know, and I've sound included in that. You know, the space sector in Scotland in particular is really exciting at the moment. Uh, I think more satellites are made in Glasgow than anywhere else except for you know the, the west coast of america and yeah. uh, there's loads of really good space companies coming out of glasgow uh, Clyde space make a large number of satellites there's r3 iot which is a satellite communications company that's basically we doing a bit of uh, work with and you know these are companies that are taking international investment bringing you know people's eyes towards scotland you know, American investors, further field investors to actually start funding this ecosystem. And then there's been a number of uh, really good exits in the, in the last 10 years. 
that have brought investment, you know, money into the pool to, to create more startups because investors love recycling their money. So if they have a good exit, they're not going to go off and lie on the beach. They're going to find the next exit. They're going to try and find the next unicorn. So we saw that with Skyscanner. Uh, there was FanDuel for a while, uh, which uh, maybe didn't get to the exit they wanted, but it definitely brought excitement to the Edinburgh scene. Uh, current health's on that way. And really, it's just a very vibrant, supportive network with lots of really cool tech going on. You just uh, have to go to the investor pitch evenings now that they're starting up again and all the kind of networking events just to see that there is a, a proper buzz with yeah the i think it's also bolstered by the public support as well not you know i mean it's like public funding support there's lots of money available to do things in scotland that aren't available south of the border like with scottish enterprise uh, census which is the center for sensors and imaging systems there's lots of public funds available to help you get started really and uh, we made use of that to create nova sound other companies use it as well and really that's what's kick-starting all the kind of innovation that's making it into the real world so we are bringing it back to nova sound um we kind of we've touched on this a few times throughout the conversation about the future of nova sound and the next couple of years um are there any sector this is maybe a bit of a, a weird question but are there any sectors that you would just really like to get into that maybe aren't traditionally involved with ultrasound? Is there anything kind of a bit mad that you see and think that'd be an interesting project? I mean, space is definitely one of them. And, you know, they always yes. say, <laughs> I think in space, they say no one can hear you scream because there's no air, so there's no sound. So, you know, it's kind of right. insulting. But, you know, we've got ideas and uh, we have spoken to a number of uh, companies out on the West Coast of the States about how you apply ultrasound technology to make sure that, especially when they're doing renewable rockets, renewable fuel tanks, yeah. they go up and come back in the same integrity. You know, there, there's a lot of scope there. And that that's that's the business I'd really like to get into, especially because of the investment that's going in at the moment in Scotland with our spaceports and the other, uh, all the satellite industry, et cetera, that's happening. That's one mm. that I'd really like to get into, uh, you know, really kind of just push limits of where ultrasound can go and, you know, uh, space is, is prime for that. Wearables is the other big one. You know, we, we right. as I said, we've done a number of proof of concepts in wearable healthcare, and I think you know the idea of being able to look deeper into people's tissue through their arm, through their chest. You know, to actually look at the long term effects of COVID, for example, or the you mm. know the some long distance runners as they're you know they've got their Fitbit for their heart rate, their temperature, but to actually look at their hydration or look at their muscle status and collect all that data. You know, you, you can do so much epidemiological good with that data that it, you know, it's just untapped at the moment. So strapping onto a human body and then blasting into space, that, that's <laughs> where it, it, it's really up for me and my aspirations. So plenty of room to, to grow or plenty of space to grow, shall we say? Absolutely. I'll wrap it up with the, the sort of final question that I like to ask everyone who comes on the show, which is basically what comes next. So your grand vision for the future doesn't have to be related to Nova Sound, but obviously it can be. What sort of feels like an ideal future for you? What do you really want to see? So I always say that Nova Sound is definitely my first startup, my first time in business, first time CEO. It's not my last at all. And it's going to be like my co-founder before me and that when I finally get to that exit point, 
I'm probably going to start again, and I'm not going to do ultrasound. God no, <laughs> well I've done uh, too much uh, ultrasound at that point. But I'll start again. I'll be a co-founder for the next me, you know, and the circle will continue. I think that's perhaps part of the Scottish genes in me of you know the support network and keeping it going. I'm not the type of person that's going to head off to the beach because I, I I'd fidget and I'd need to get back onto something. So for me, whatever comes next is probably going to be the next kind of startup. It might be in software, it might be in a, a different area of tech, but just have so much good times doing this that uh, I'd be daft not to try it again. All right, guys, how do you feel about these super flexible, super sensitive sensors? Yeah, I, I mean, aside from it being incredibly cool tech, um, I, I'm just I'm really, really impressed with the journey that this company has gone through. Uh, and it was nice to kind of hear about all the intricacies of like the Scottish um, startup and SME ecosystem as well. Like, you know, that that's kind of what what I as a, as a startup geek really like to hear about. So uh, it sounds like they're at such an exciting point in their journey. And, uh, you know, if they if they get anywhere near to what um, it sounds like they're about to do, then, man, like, this is going to be a serious company that we're going to be hearing a lot about for years to come. Yeah, I agree. I, I really loved the sort of, uh, the, I guess, the product journey as well as the actual company journey, kind of starting with biomedical engineering as a research thing and then spotting an opportunity in industry and then kind of, figuring out how to get that done and now possibly revisiting the medical industry. And yeah, it's just kind of, it feels like it's a, it's, it's a really interesting journey, but it's kind of all centered around the same technology, which I really enjoyed. Rob, what did you think? Yeah, I, I think the, I completely agree. I think the technology is really interesting as is the journey. And I think it's a really interesting one for, there will be lots of kind of you know academics out there who are working in some you know really really fascinating areas, um, and yeah, developing some really interesting technologies with kind of broad industrial applications and like you know kind of slowly incubating these really interesting opportunities to start a company. And so it's good to see you know that this journey is kind of definitely definitely possible. And it was really good to talk to Dave about you know, the different steps he took to kind of turn it into this company and the different ways he kind of pitched it to investors, all that kind of stuff. So I really hope that, you know, if there are researchers out there listening to this, that they can take a lot of kind of, you know, stock and kind of wisdom from it. Um, I'll, I do have to apologize, by the way, if you can hear some singing in the background of this, um, I live right next to a church. My window is closed, but there's a guy practicing a, a, a section from a musical um and he's got a, just a brilliant powerful voice he's like two stories down behind glass and you can i think still hear it so um if you can hear it that's why it's not it's not <laughs> which musical is it I, I can't tell actually it keeps it keeps um it, it keeps it's quite i don't know it, it, bits of it sound like kind of oh holy night but then it's mm -hmm. definitely sort of musical um it was also i mean like i mentioned on the uh like i mentioned during the interview it's it's great that we've gone on this completely accidental run of um, Scottish innovators. You know, we're really seeing yes. how this, you know, it's fantastic. And like Amy is someone who, you know, lives in Scotland for, for a while. I imagine this is like particularly uh, kind of gratifying for, for you to see. Yeah, I mean, I used to live in Glasgow. I studied at the University of Glasgow. I, I, I know a lot of people who are creators there. Um, and it's just so, so cool to see. To, to be able to interview some of these people and and talk about the things that they're doing. Not yeah. to generalize, but what is the, like, do you get a sort of, 
Uh, did you get a sense of like an entrepreneurial spirit, a kind of, uh, you said creators, creative spirit? You know, do you think there's something about Glasgow and Scotland more generally that does lend itself to, or that obviously lends itself to, to you know, innovation, creativity? Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm if I'm the best person to, I mean, this is all just judgment from my head, but there are loads of universities there that attract minds from all over the world. Um, and they're quite often in, like highly concentrated in smaller areas, like in Glasgow, there's five of them. I think we 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 counted. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of smart people lurking around, but also the government is very supportive of innovation. There are a lot of grants out there. There's a lot of uh, support for funding, both in sort of science innovation, but also in creative arts and stuff like that. Uh, so I think it is a country that lends itself really well to innovation and creation and all of that good stuff. And I think it has been historically as well. It's, it's, you know, these people are sitting on the shoulders of giants. I thought one of the things that was really interesting there was, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you were talking about, about the kind of carry through from, from the universities. But um, in addition to that, the fact that Scotland has now got this, I guess, like the, the first generation of these big IPOs, these big exits, um, that are creating entrepreneurial um, angel investors. And that's like exactly what um, you saw in Silicon Valley when it was first becoming, you know, this absolute hotbed of innovation. Um, it was a case that rather than having to pitch to investment banks or, you know, hedge funds or whoever else that maybe didn't really get it, it was a case of pitching to other people who could hold your hand through part of the journey, bought into you as an innovator and really wanted to see new technologies brought about. I think, um, yeah, our guest was saying, you know, he doesn't want to you know, go off and sit on the beach. Yeah, he, he wants to, you know, continue to, to build new businesses and to build new innovations. And that's a massively important part of, of any tech scene is, is those people who've gone through the journey and can then mentor uh, and, and can chaperone new people through, uh, through their own journeys as well. Absolutely. And I, and I, I guess another part of this is, you know, how, how sort of far ahead they're looking into the future and how kind of creative they're getting with the applications for this really, really cool technology. Amy, uh, I saw your eyes light up when um, Dave went to, you know, to when Dave's like talking about the sort of space born applications for this, uh, which yes, is always please. great when a guest, it's like always great when a guest doesn't, um, it's always great when a guest takes us to space without us having to, uh, us having to take uh, them there. So, yeah, what do you think about that? It was a quite cool part of um, what he was saying. Yeah, well, obviously, I'm, I'm up for anything that that uh, is space related, so I'm definitely up for that. And yeah, I mean, they already use they already use their technology in the aviation industry, so I don't think it's too much of a leap when we're looking at sort of reusable space space. Uh, engineering now it, it's not too much of a leap to to sort of tack on to aviation basically it's a it's just a slightly more complex version of aviation slightly more a lot more complex version of aviation um yeah. but yeah i think it's a sensible uh market for them to move into for sure Maybe this is a good time, actually, for us to put a shout out to any Scottish companies that uh, are working on really innovative ideas. We'd love to hear from you guys. We'd love to have some more Scottish companies on the podcast. So for any entrepreneurs or investors um, that are working on or involved in any interesting and innovative projects, uh, particularly up in Scotland, feel free to contact us at wcn at granttree.co.uk. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Comes Next. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review on iTunes? You don't even have to give us five stars. Don't forget to check the show notes for more information about what we've discussed on the show and where to find us online. Thank you again and see you next time.